and Surtur of Muspelheim steps across the walls of Asgard into her shining streets. As if in response to his presence, the eternal flame before him burns brighter until its radiance seems to fill the very heavens. A hush settles over the worlds, and all of existence seems concentrated in the flame, the sword, and the demon. I am Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold, episode five of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And behold also our first uh, second part of our first two-part episode. We'll just throw some numbers at you. It'll make a lot of sense. But yeah, we are going to be picking up right where we left off as soon as we get started with the second half of the Surt War, of the war between the forces of Muspelheim and the forces of Midgard and Asgard combined and there's so much awesomeness but first elizabeth how's it going pretty good as you might be able to tell uh listeners i am fighting off a cold so if i'm sound a little stuffy that that's the reason how about you uh i'm I'm feeling okay myself Um, i'm actually feeling pretty great because last night i saw a movie that i'd been intending to get around to see for a long time uh this is the russian avengers equivalent guardians and i I don't know if it's a good movie or not, because the version I saw had a fan-translated sub that um, was a little incoherent at times, but I will say it did have some fun action scenes, and it had some intense drama and a villain that looked like a giant roided-out baby, but most importantly, one of the main characters was a were-grizzly bear with a Gatling gun, and I have nothing bad to say about that. That sounds pretty awesome. That part was definitely awesome. The rest of it, like I said, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad or what, but uh, you can be bad and still be awesome, and this may have been. So were these Russian versions of Avengers characters? Was it Russia's own superheroes? Like There were no direct parallels. It was more like there were these people who were genetically modified by sciency people back during the Cold War, and then they got called back in the present day to fight a uh, roided commander baby guy. Uh, I feel like maybe it was really nationalistic, but I don't know because like I said, I couldn't exactly tell what was going on thanks to the translation. Yeah, you said it was a fan translation, right? It was, yeah. I'm going to have to check this out. I think it's uh, it's certainly worth your time. I was I was entertained. <laughs> but we're going to talk today about things that are legitimately unequivocally awesome, specifically the second half of this amazing story. Oh my god, this story has everything. It has epic heroes and last minute saves and the pacing is just perfect. It really is. It's definitely an edge of your seat a uh, couple of issues because yeah, we have the first two issues we'll be covering, numbers 352 and 353. That's the uh, last part of the war and then 354 is sort of a denouement but for those first two issues it's just every single page turn there's something new and exciting and shocking after more than a year of build-up this is exactly the sort of payoff a reader could only hope for oh yeah i mean going to that place beyond the fields we know as searcher forged twilight over the course of a year like this is not a letdown this is not the reavers in serenity this lives up to every little bit of foreshadowing that had been put in place Excellent. Uh, so I suppose let's jump into number 352. We previously had Ragnarok and Roll, and then Ragnarok and Roll 2. This story is entitled Ragnarok and Ruin. 
And one thing you notice once you get into the story a little bit is Thor isn't in this issue at all. Right. This is a book called The Mighty Thor. It's a big climactic storyline of The Mighty Thor. And Thor doesn't show up at all because, as you may remember, toward the end of the last issue of Thor, he got knocked the hell out by Surtur. He got flattened by his own hammer and then pounded into the ground by this gigantic fire demon. And so he's out for a while. I mean, that was not just a love tap. He's damn near toast. Yeah, it really brings home the gravity of the situation when the hero of your comic is knocked out for an entire issue. Yeah. And so speaking of heroes, we have quite a few of them scattered in quite a few places. So I say let's start out and see what's going on in New York, where the invasion by the fire demons of Muspelheim continues apace. So we have Beta Ray Bill as the commander of Asgard's forces, and he realizes that even if Sif and her and Haryar are able to do something about the Empire State Building's Doom Tube, there are many other gates across the world. Yeah, because there are all these demons pouring into New York City through the Doom Tube on the Empire State Building, but like... It's not just happening in New York, it's happening everywhere. The forces of Muspelheim are assaulting all of Midgard, Star, Earth. (laughs) You need the star, otherwise I'm not going to know what you're talking about, Miles. Well, exactly. I mean, it's not like we could be expected to remember. I get it. I mean, back in the day, they were really big on the every issue could be someone's first, and so that's useful. But reading Thor issue after Thor issue after Thor issue, it does get pretty comical after a while. Well, now in the comics, every 20 issues, it really is another number one issue, so. (laughs) You're lucky if you get to 20 at this point. (laughs) Anyhow, Mr. Fantastic tells Bill he may have a way to reverse the gate. I like this because we have this incredible might of the forces of Asgard and Vanaheim and, you know, all of the various forces of Earth that are allied with them. But that's not working. I mean, when you have an almost literal unlimited number of demons pouring forth from another dimension, you can keep fighting forever. But eventually you're going to give out and the forces of this whole other dimension probably won't. Exactly. So Sif leads the attack retreat on a literal wall of demons, and Harokin, leader of the Anhariar, is impressed with her fighting heart. He even mentions that maybe Thor let her slip away too soon. Yeah, and I mean, you know, dude, stop objectifying the lady. She's more than a love interest. But I gotta say, Sif is incredibly impressive, and Harokin's totally right to be impressed. I mean, she is, she may not wear a red cape or have a hammer, but she is one of the most impressive warriors that Asgard or Vanaheim are really any of the nine worlds have ever produced. And so as planned, Sif and the Anhariar lead the demons away from the gate. And man, the literal avalanche of demons here. It's that same sort of liquid stream of pure malice that Simonson excels so much at drawing. It's really impressive. There's just like this mass full of wings and claws and limbs just coming out of it. And they're all just chasing after all of the Anhariar, the most valiant dead of Midgard brought up to Asgard to fight eternally. Like, you kind of still worry for them because that many demons, I would not want to go up against them. In fact, I personally wouldn't want to go up against even one demon, but I'm, I'm no Anhariar. Yeah, yeah, like maybe like the one demon they capture later on who's not super brave and kind of the comedic relief, maybe him, but yeah, I can't do it. We could play some laser tag or something. I'd be up for that. I could play laser tag against demons. (laughs) But this is actually Bill's plan from the previous issue. They are running up toward the gate and then falling back and leading them between the towers of the World Trade Center, which, of course, in a post-9-11 world is really kind of a gut punch but they're basically leading him to a trap where Tyr and the Executioner wait with their own armies and crash yeah they just 
fall down upon the uh, the oncoming wave of demons like a hammer on a freaking anvil, and it is impressive. I mean, once again, you're not going to get by with raw might. There's just too many demons. you got to have some strategy. In this case, you have to have a bunch of flying space Vikings hanging out behind the Twin Towers. Uh, it's like there's some actual military strategy going on here, and, and as we were talking this out, we just came back to this overarching theme again and again that vast power is great but you have to have intelligence and strategies to succeed Mm -hmm. and speaking of intelligence mr fantastic is still with beta ray bill and they are heading as uh, this skirmish goes on to the gate itself because mr fantastic has been using you know science of some sort to figure out how the gate works and he thinks he knows exactly what he needs to do he stretches out an arm from where bill is carrying him oh hugsies and he presses the off button so yeah it's like this exposed button is a death star level engineering flaw like how do you calculate where an off switch is i think it's because that reed richards as a marvel universe scientist basically has a doctorate in everything including button placementology Exactly. Yeah. He's smart. He's very smart. Don't question him. He'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) He might very well, uh, especially if it's the ultimate version of Reed Richards. That guy's terrifying. He's mean. And so this works. I mean, the gate is shut down. The endless oncoming stream of the fire demons of Muspelheim, they're cut off from their source. And so they're just alone amid the combined armies of a number of different non-fiery realms. And they are mopping up the remaining demons. And, of course, this group of heroes includes a sword-wielding Storm, Mohawk and all. Yeah, Storm of the X-Men is here. And this seems like just a one-off. I mean, of course, all the superheroes are teaming up because this is a really big deal. This is another dimension invading. Of course, all the teams would be there. But this will totally pay off later because in one of my very favorite stories, the X-Men New Mutant story, The Asgardian Wars... Loki kidnaps Storm and brings her to Asgard to turn her into a goddess of thunder now that she's lost her weather control powers. And the reason he does that is because right here, right now, Loki's been watching this whole thing unbeknownst to the readers of this issue since it's not shown. And he is damn impressed with this warrior woman with no powers, just going sword to claw with demons of a dimension she's never encountered. So I like that. I like that, you know, Chris Claremont, a little bit later, will take this one little throwaway panel and use it as the basis for an entire story. That is wonderful. And I love the through line of Storm, even without her powers, being just a little bit better than almost every hero in the Marvel Universe. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was that one time that she beat Cyclops, who did have his powers, at one-on-one combat. I hated when they tried to retcon that Madeline was, like, clouding his mind so he couldn't concentrate. I'm like, don't give him any excuses. He lost fair and square. Because Storm is awesome. Totally. So anyway, amidst all the fighting, Beta Ray Bill realizes that the Lady Sif is still missing. The last he and we saw of her, she was leading and then protecting the rear of the Anhariar as they were harrying the fire demons coming out of the portal. Now she's gone and Bill just wants to go after her to find her at all costs. Yeah, this is a mirror of the previous arc where Sif was desperate to get to Asgard to help Odin and Thor. And uh, she had Bill as her kind of get a grip friend. And here Bill has Volstag. Hold still. Must I set on you to make you hear me? You know yourself that the battle is but a skirmish in our war. The demon host here is but a fraction of the force arrayed against us. And any delay may doom our cause. Volstag's grief is greater than any. But though the life of a single goddess is a pearl without price against the lives of millions, that life is as nothing. Did you not say it yourself to her 
duty before self. You are our commander. We await your orders. I always enjoy that Volstagg, even though he's often played as a buffoon, I mean, he was initially named after the Shakespearean character Falstaff, when he's in the mood to, when he's not just being goofy, he's an observant and crafty and wise dude. And honestly, you couldn't really wish for a better friend or a better comrade in arms than this pink-clad, like, yellow skullcap antennae uh, bearded warrior. Sometimes you need a friend who's willing to literally sit on you to keep you from doing something stupid. I could have used that at many times during my life. Oh, man, seriously. I'm looking at a great deal of my 20s here. (laughs) So next, Bill intimidates a captive demon into talking, which is a great scene. The demon's like, I will never talk. And then Bill puts his head right against his and he totally spills his guts. He lets him know that demons are coming through the gate in the Sahara. And do I wish I was back there right now? Another funny demon moment. This is great with all this drama and all this epicness. They really liberally salt it with little bits of throwaway humor that really kind of heighten everything. Yeah, the demons are absolutely right to be intimidated by the giant Viking space horse with a hammer. I would be too. Totally. Next, once Mr. Fantastic finishes reprogramming the gate, Bill and all the armies head through to the Sahara for the final assault. And this gate is so freaking cool looking on the other side, on the Sahara side of it. Because, of course, in New York, it's just this big piece of machinery attached to the Empire State Building. In the Sahara, it's this enormous gate. It kind of reminds me of the Dark Portal from Warcraft, but like way, way bigger. And we have this almost mix of Dark Elf and Muspelheim architecture. Like we have various faces and horned helms and spikes and blades. And it's pretty scary in addition to being freaking, I don't know, 600 feet tall or something. It's like the scariest temple ever. It really is, yeah. And so they now find themselves facing the source of the armies of Muspelheim. This is where they're all funneling in in from the realm of fire. And as mighty as the Asgardian warriors are, they have their work cut out for them. But elsewhere, far, far away, in England, in the Cotswolds of England specifically, Roger Willis and the Human Torch are flying. Roger had his plan last time that he was telling the Human Torch about— He's going to try to reassemble the shattered casket of ancient winters to maybe undo the spell of eternal cold, which is now enveloping all of Earth. And the Human Torch is skeptical, saying, That didn't work for Humpty Dumpty. Maybe not, but the King's men didn't have crazy glue to work with either. Roger Willis remains a practical fellow. And a random note that one of our listeners pointed out on our comments on our website— I'd forgotten, but Roger's daughter, Verity, actually is a character that shows up later in Loki, Agent of Asgard. So we have three generations of Willises being awesome over the course of the history of the Thor comics. If you haven't read Loki, Agent of Asgard, then A, you should read uh, Kieran Gillen's Journey into Mystery run first because it follows that up. And B, you totally should. Al Ewing nails it. He just kills it. Talking about Loki, certainly, but also the very nature of, of story itself. Like, it's almost Grant Morrison or Alan Moore in that regard. I am sold. I just want to know, does Roger, was he able to develop a better relationship with his daughter than he was with his father? I don't actually remember, but based on how bad the relationship was between Eric and Roger, I'm going to say probably better than that. Sure. But back to the matter at hand, we can see why Reed sent the Human Torch with him because he burns them a path and melts the ice around the casket fragments as Roger gets to work with his necessary items, which include heating coils, tweezers, glue... And most important of all, spectacles. 
So you mentioned when we were talking about the Dark Elf arc that Roger really lends this very human air to the proceedings, that he's just a guy, even though he's in the middle of all of these supernatural, maddening events. And yeah, right here, even more so. He's a practical man, and now spectacles are not just for uh, secret identities. That's right. They're also for reassembling mystical artifacts to stop <laughs> the Fimblevinter. So we've checked in with New York City. We've checked in with the Cotswolds of England. But this is the mighty Thor, so we should definitely talk about what's going on in Asgard. And what's going on is that Surtur is confronting Odin at the gates of Asgard, and he catches us up. Thanks, Surtur. Stand aside, All-Father. I have broken the Rainbow Bridge, crushed its guardian Heimdall, and defeated the mighty Thor. I have come for the eternal flame you stole from me in the beginning of time, and I will not be denied! So we see Surtur and the flame above the roofs of Asgard with a city in between, but it's clear that nothing else equals the scale of the Pursuer and the Quarry. Yeah, it's like some kind of a giant monster movie. I mean, there's this almost uh, waist-high level of buildings, and then Surtur and the flame are the only things to rise above, and they're the only things that really draw our eye, the only things that seem to matter. Because the sheer power on display here, the sheer majesty and mysticism coming from the demon... And the flame, nothing can compare. And speaking of waist-high, Surtur's fiery loincloth is pretty awesome here. I, I don't know if I just missed it in the previous issues or if it's more apparent now, but it's kind of like uh, Adam and Eve, like instead of having a whole lot of leaves around, he just has all these flames coming out. Oh man, it kind of reminds me of uh, in He-Man and the Masters of, of the Universe, how all the dudes are wearing these sort of like furry briefs. Yeah, what was up with that? I don't know. I mean, it seems like it could be really comfortable, but it could also get super gross really easily. I mean, you get like bugs and stuff in there. That's no good. <laughs> Crumbs, all kinds of stuff. Oh. That's no good. I'm so glad I'm not a He-Man character for like a lot of reasons. <laughs> hey, Tila was pretty rad. Okay, Tila was pretty rad. Uh, she did not have to wear the furry underwear. That was a definite advantage. And honestly, like everybody in She-Ra was really rad. She-Ra was so much cooler than He-Man. She-Ra was pretty cool. I mean, she had the winged horse and everything. Yeah, and like she had to deal with so much more. I mean, He-Man was the prince of his realm, and she was like this rebel leader in this world overrun by evil. Well, wasn't she kidnapped and then she had like Stockholm Syndrome and then she like had to break apart from her stepfather, aka her kidnapper? That must have been really traumatic. This was some heavy stuff for a kid show. <laughs> Whoops, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> And as Surtur says that his flame burns brighter and hotter so near the flame, we see this vastly zoomed out panel of Asgard out in space with this enormous explosion of golden light coming out of it. And that's a trick that Simonson keeps coming back to whenever something really impressive is happening in Asgard, we just zoom out into space and usually there's some kind of explosion or energy glow or whatever just showing the sheer magnitude and scale of whatever it is that's going on. Odin blasts Surtur with the Odin power, but Surtur cuts right through it with a slash. And he brings his sword above him and just slams it into Odin with a blam that fills a full quarter of the page it's on. And all we see in front of the sound effect is a tiny shattered helm in the foreground. When you have a sound effect that much bigger than what the sound effect is impacting, that's how you convey power and scale. And the narration says, The force of the blow sends shockwaves rumbling through the nine worlds. 
And Odin is in terrible shape. He is battered and bruised. His armor is in tatters around him. He's barely standing as Surtur towers over him. You only delay the inevitable, Odin. So close to the eternal flame, my sword draws upon its limitless power and replenishes my strength. You cannot injure me. You cannot stop me. Sooner or later, your power will be exhausted while mine only increases. Thou hast said enough. Let all my power enter into the scepter until it doth glow with an incandescence rivaling that of the eternal flame itself. Then shall I hurl it with all the might at my command, and Surtur shall learn the full measure of the power of Odin. And that does it. The flame's power is no longer flowing into Surtur, so he cleaves through time and space into Muspelheim itself. Like you do. I love that he has a sword that can cut through time and space. I love that Surtur mentions that he was a fool to reveal, you know, the source of his power, which, yeah, dude. Yeah, I mean, Odin's a smart guy. He's paying attention. He's a good listener. Do you think he's, like, reflective listening the whole time? Just, mm, uh-huh, yes? Oh, tell me more. <laughs> yeah, he's just grasping onto any little thing and turning it over, like, judo-like against his opponent. Exactly. And this is bad times for Surtur. This is the first time we've seen him not fully confident in his victory. So it's time for him to take things up a notch or three. Come, ye hoary winters, cold as death. Come, ice. Come, hail. Come, sleet. Come, ye chill and frosty rhymes of white. Before the nine worlds were, before Odin was... Then were the lands of fire and ice alone in being. From the beginnings of the world, I call the ancient breath of winter, brother of fire. Heed my call and come. So Surtur channels all of Niflheim, the realm of ice, this gigantic, epic, cosmic storm of snow and fury through his sword at Odin, freezing him in literally a crystal of icy malevolence. Not all the ancient powers, Lord Odin. Thank thee for bringing order to the nine worlds and depriving them of their ancient dominions. And this is their hour. This isn't just a war between realms. It's not just a war between the realms of fire and ice and the realms of Midgard and Asgard. This is literally a war between order and primal protean chaos. This is fundamental forces battling one another. Surtur consistently says that he was born to destroy everything. So this adds, you know, a sense of inevitability to this fight, like that they're they're fighting against what must be. The phrase force of nature, I think, is overused, but that's exactly what we're seeing here. He is literally the concept of fire and the concept of destruction given form. And there's nothing left to stop him. And Surtur of Muspelheim steps across the walls of Asgard into her shining streets. As if in response to his presence, the eternal flame before him burns brighter until its radiance seems to fill the very heavens. A hush settles over the worlds, and all of existence seems concentrated in the flame, the sword, and the demon. And so we have the god of fire channeling the realm of ice, having defeated Odin, having defeated Thor, having defeated Heimdall. The flame is right in front of him. But you may remember 
the fury of Niflheim, the fury of the realm of ice, was coming through the casket of ancient winters onto Earth. That's what was causing all the storms. That's what Roger was trying to stop in reassembling the casket. And in England, just as he's about to finish doing it, suddenly the cold stops because the winter is gone. Nothing left is standing between him and closing the casket, except the army of Dark Elves who have just shown up. So that's no good. But back in Asgard, Surtur isn't really sweating the small stuff. He's not worrying about the details. And in fact, there's this impressive full-page panel of Surtur and his fire loincloth lighting twilight, the sword with the eternal flame that will ignite it, allowing him to burn down the world itself. Thor is unconscious. We see him there. Odin is sealed in a giant crystal of ice. Nobody can stop him, and he's reached his goal. Or has he? We see the flame disappears to Surtur's confusion. My sword! Why isn't it lit? Surely not even the fates can cheat me of this victory like this! And Loki, god of lies in his green and golden glory, suddenly appears, leaning casually against a wall. Many questions, mighty Surtur. One answer. And the flame was one of Loki's illusions. Illusions, Michael. (laughs) We were talking earlier about how whenever he says illusions, we both picture Job from Arrested Development. You know, it's actually really easy to picture Job just wearing Loki's outfit and doing everything Loki does, but like less competently. Yeah, yeah. He'd be a way less fearsome uh, opponent. But this is awesome because... As you remember, Balter the Brave was sent to go find Loki and recruit him for this grand battle, and Loki said no, screw it, and manipulated Balder into breaking his vow of pacifism and into beheading Loki, I mean, temporarily. Like, he seemed so derisive of the very concept of fighting to protect Asgard or fighting to protect anything. And nonetheless... At the last minute, when all other defenders have fallen, when Surtur is about to achieve his goal and end existence... Here is the god of mischief standing in his way. And at this development, Surtur becomes so angry, he starts having a temper tantrum like a child. But Malekith said you had agreed to withhold your support from Asgard! But Loki explains that schemers are always the easiest to deceive. "'Twas not difficult to see that your true goal was not what Malekith claimed, the destruction of Asgard, which I could readily agree to, but the destruction of everything." And of what use is that to me? Why aspire to become the lord of all I survey, if all I survey is a burned-out cinder? I mean, Loki's got professional goals he needs to achieve. This this isn't going to advance his CV. He's got like a five-year plan, dude. The flame! Where hast thou hidden the flame? Of course, being an elemental does have its advantages. One never has to entertain more than one thought at a time. Oh, wicked burn, Loki. Which is impressive, because, you know, usually Surtur's the guy that burns. I burn the fire god! Good one! Right? (laughs) But I like this, because Loki is used to fighting his brother. He's used to fighting Thor, who, compared to Loki, is kind of a great big lug. Like, he's a blundering oaf compared to the intellect that is Loki. And here's somebody who is not only kind of that, if not more so, but also completely at cross-purposes with Loki's own goals. But even a simple mind, granted a body of great power, may accomplish much if one is not careful. My stepbrother Thor is the living proof of that. And Loki then proceeds to pull a trick he pulled in the first Thor movie and create a great deal of illusory duplicates of himself, all of which fly up into the air and confuse the hell out of Surtur. 
But Searcher does eventually destroy all the duplicates, shoots Loki out of the sky, and makes his way to the real Eternal Flame. Yet another Defender Fallen. And at this point, there's nobody left. Asgard is abandoned. The two guardians who stayed behind, Heimdall and Odin, have fallen. Thor himself, who went to rescue them, has fallen. Loki himself, who decided to deign to oppose Surtur, has fallen. So this seems like a perfect time to check out an entirely different part of Asgard and talk about some scenes that have been going on over the last couple of issues. What's been going on here? So Frigga, Odin's wife, is leading the children of Asgard away from the battle to safety, including a spunky young girl in pigtails named Gunhild or Hildi. And Hildi's grilling Frigga about this whole thing. Will there actually be any danger, or was Odin just trying to get rid of the kids? But she's quickly answered by the circumstances themselves, because on the bridge in front of them, a troll is blocking their path. A troll that looks suspiciously like Obelix from the old Asterix comics. I don't know if that was deliberate, but he totally does. (laughs) In any case, he says either they give him one of the children to eat, or he'll kill them all. So at least he's, you know, playing by the the troll rulebook. Maybe not the, like, Asgardian troll rulebook, because they kind of do their own thing, but still. Shouldn't he have had, like, three questions to ask them first? That seems unsporting of him. You know, he's just going to go ahead and cut to the chase. He figures there's enough complication going on elsewhere in Asgard. He's going to keep it simple, eat a baby, and move on with his life. Fortunately, Gunhild has a plan. She gets a boost from the other kids, flips over the troll, and ties herself to the far end of the bridge with a rope, while the other kids distract the troll with taunts. I mean, kids can be pretty awesome, don't get me wrong, but I will say children are uniquely skilled at cruelly insulting each other, and given that a troll is at roughly the same intellectual level as a child, I mean, those skills carry right over. Absolutely. Don't they, like, mock his nose and ask if he's growing potatoes or tomatoes or something? Yeah, exactly. Those jerk-ass guardian kids. I mean, they're our heroes and I like them, but I almost feel bad for the cannibalistic troll. I know. Well, he's not too bright, which goes along with our theme of, you know, smarts and strategy, defeating might. Speaking of which, Gunhild tricks the troll into slicing through his own bridge and he falls while she's secured by the rope. Well done, Hildy. And man, Hildy's just going to get more and more awesome as time goes on. Like, every time I see her, I like her more. She's the best kid. I was wondering. It seemed kind of like a one-off or just kind of like a strange aside they kept doing. So I'm glad to hear that she continues. I do like that we get to see the refugees from Asgard here. I mean, Simonson goes out of his way to not only show the magnitude of the battles that are going on, but also the cost. You know, we have this shining city, this almost utopia of Viking culture in space, and Their home is at risk. Their home may be gone. They may never get to come back to it. And they're out in the wilds on their own with only one adult to accompany and protect them, having to deal with, like, trolls and stuff. I mean, luckily, this is going to be an awesome bonding experience. It's going to be like summer camp to the nth degree. Like, four centuries from now, they're going to be fighting alongside each other. And they'll be like, remember when we outsmarted that troll? It was great. It was the first time we ended a life as children. (laughs) Murderous children. Maybe these are like the children of the corn. I think that's pretty much the default on Asgard. Like, (laughs) death is just everywhere. Murdery. So, in England, we mentioned that winter had just disappeared from Earth, and Roger was surrounded by dark elves, but thankfully he gets a Johnny Storm ex machina to suddenly come in and protect him. And then they take off in the Rip Roar 1. And as they're fleeing, Roger glues the final piece of the casket back together, even though there doesn't seem to be much of a point since winter is gone, and clicks the lid shut. And suddenly... He can feel the winter enchantment back in the box again. All of the cold of Niflheim is now back in the casket of ancient winters. It feels just like it did the first time I found it. 
But if the winter wasn't on the earth and it wasn't in the box until just now, then where was it? Where was it? It was imprisoning Odin, who is now free. And so as Searcher moves toward the flame, like, I don't know much about football, but from what I understand, this is kind of how football works. Like, you get a couple feet every time, and then some new obstacle appears to stop you. Like, the quarterback is running with the football, and then Odin unfreezes and stops him, and then Loki clones a bunch of himself. I'm pretty sure this is exactly how football works, actually. All I remember about football is that it would say there were, like, five minutes left to the game, and then it would take another hour. And that's kind of what's going on here, but it's super awesome. I mean, maybe that's awesome in football as well, if you're a football fan, I don't know. But regardless, yeah, Odin is now free, and Surtur is unopposed no longer. When suddenly his blade is knocked away by Mjolnir. Because Thor is here! Not only did Odin get unfrozen, but Thor woke up. We have the heroes rallying one final time, just as all is almost entirely lost, just as all of existence is about to be put to the torch. And as Loki, too, shows up, Surtur declares they will all die. But Odin gathers both of his sons to his side. But how better for a god to die, Surtur of Muspelheim, than facing fearful odds? And when better to die than with a man's sons beside him? For Asgard! For Midgard! For myself! Oh, man, this panel right here as Odin and Thor and Loki all team up, charging forward in this super heroic pose, each declaring what's most important to them, but unified in purpose. This is one of the most iconic panels in the entire run, and not just because it's really funny that Loki is fighting entirely for himself. It's so freaking cool. I love all of these characters. I love everything about what's going on right now. This is heroism incarnate. Surger has brought this little family together, and I gotta say, Dad is mad. Him calling him Surger of Muspelheim totally reminds me of when I was in real trouble as a kid and my mom would call me by my full name. Exactly. And sure enough, Surger is in trouble. Not that much trouble, though, because he is, of course, incredibly, insanely powerful. Even with Muspelheim cut off from him, even with Niflheim no longer flowing through his sword, he's still Searcher. He's still one of the elemental forces, one of the oldest creatures in all of existence. And now, once again, as he did so long ago, he faces three sons of Asgard. And just because he can't get to the eternal flame doesn't mean he can't reach it. As he shoots the fires of Muspelheim perhaps from his loincloth, toward the eternal flame. And if the two, you know, flames touch, the battle is lost. Right, because that will be close enough. Muspelheim is flowing once again into his blade, and if Muspelheim touches the eternal flame, then that circuit is complete, the sword is ignited, and he can burn down the world. But thankfully, Odin is able to block the fires of Muspelheim from reaching the flame. Thor calls down the power of the storm to put out the fire. They're doing everything they can, pulling out every trick in the book. And circumstances are dire as well. Back on Midgard, back in the Sahara Desert, as Beta Ray Bill and his forces are fighting all the demons, but slowly being forced back into the gateway. And Mr. Fantastic hasn't been able to engineer this side of the gateway, so if they're forced back through, they will be in the Realm of Fire in Muspelheim, and they will be slain immediately. They'll be torn apart. And they see a bunch of people beaming into another gateway, but fortunately, this time, it is Balder, Carnilla, and her forces as they appear in the nick of time, and they beat the heck out of a lot of demons. And we just have these continual hero moments. I mean, this is Return of the Jedi. This is when all of a sudden the Millennium Falcon shows up and saves the day, but over and over, Thor shows up, and Odin shows up, and Loki shows up, and now Balder and Carnilla and the Norn army shows up, and it's all at the very last second. Like, you paid for your whole seat, you only need the edge. (laughs) 
what I love is this shows how like meticulously crafted and thought out this whole story was like the pacing, the one thing affecting the other, which affects the other, which affects the other. Like it all feels so satisfying and well earned. And so as the Norns battle the demons, giving the Asgardian forces a chance to regroup, Beta Ray Bill asks the Enchantress to call the strongest warriors to his side. So we have Vision, we have Hercules, we have She-Hulk. And Bill directs them to help him tip over the massive, like, 600-foot-tall gateway, which theoretically will cut off the demon's access to the Realm of Fire. And it's so cool to see the Enchantress, you know, previously uh, an enemy, working alongside our heroes without a word of dissent. It's just pure teamwork. That could have been you, Lorelai. <sighs> Lorelai, why can't you be more like your sister? I mean, seriously, you should be more like your sister. The Enchantress is awesome. And, dude, Hercules right here? Oh, man. By the beard of Zeus, this weight of stone doth barely stir before even the prodigious strength of the mightiest hero of them all. Because even fighting aside an army of gods, Hercules is still pretty damn positive. He's basically the greatest. He's his own PR guy. <laughs> yeah, he's his own <laughs> hype man. So Carnilla and her forces route the demons, guiding them back into the gateway, and when suddenly, with immense, great Herculean, if you will, effort, the gateway tips the hell over, crashing into the sands. The demons are gone. Only a few, only the few that did not get pushed back through, are still there to be contended with. Beta Ray Bill leads the charge. Forward, warriors of Asgard. Forward, heroes of Valhalla. Forward all. As we sweep the enemy before us to his total destruction. Oh, everything is just so badass. Every single thing that happens, like from one page to the next. Back in Asgard, Surtur is about to win his battle. But suddenly he senses that his demonic forces have been defeated. He doesn't know how this is possible. He doesn't know how this could have happened. And that is the distraction that the Asgardians have been waiting for. As Thor charges up his hammer again and throws it at Surtur's hand, causing him to drop his sword. And without Surtur having contact with his magical blade, Odin has full access to his powers. Odin has full access to the Odin force itself, that which he gained from the combined powers of himself, Vili, and Vey the last time they fought Surtur when his brothers were killed by the fire giant. And so Odin does now, alone, what he did then with his brothers, and grows into an enormous, powerful space viking. Now, demon, we are evenly matched, and this is the hour of your defeat. And they grapple on the edge of a cleft that Surtur rent in the ground to Muspelheim itself, and Odin orders Thor and Loki to destroy the ground under their feet. And Surtur falls into Muspelheim, and as Odin begins to fall as well... Well struck, O oh my sons! Thy father's pride in his children is beyond all measure. But Surtur must never return. Guard well this ancient realm, and rule it wisely. Into your hands, I give the future. And Odin and Surtur are gone, and the cleft closes up, sealing Muspelheim away from Asgard and seemingly ending the lives of Surtur and the Lord of Asgard, the All-Father, the father of Thor, and adopted father of Loki. Odin is gone. And his words of farewell are almost exactly the words his brothers, Vili and Vey, said to him when they sacrificed themselves, so that really brought it home. And what brings it home as well 
is the last page, a full-page spread of Thor and Loki both charging forward, no longer rivals, no longer hero of Asgard and exiled manipulator, but just two sons who have lost their father as they both yell, Father! And it's a wonderful callback to the end of Thor number 337, the end of Walter Simonson's first issue in his entire run, where Don Blake raises his arms to the sky when he thinks he's been forsaken by Odin, when he's been abandoned and left to Midgard. He too yells, Father. And here we have not Donald Blake, not the mortal alter ego, not on Midgard, but a son and his brother alone for the first time. But then Thor immediately jumps into action, trying to smash through the rubble to Muspelheim to save Odin. We've seen him go into a berserker rage when he was trying to save Melody, but that was magically induced. You know, here he's much more violent, much more desperate. You can really see his loss when he thinks Odin is gone. Loki, however, is paying much more attention to the reality of the situation. He's not fueled by pure emotion the way Thor is. He says that he can't sense Odin and Surtur anywhere in the Nine Worlds. And he points out that if Odin was really dead, then the Odin force would have passed to the two of them, to Thor and Loki, the way it passed from Vili and Ve when they were killed. Maybe Odin is still somewhere out there alive, but more importantly, if Thor busts through to Muspelheim, if he opens a passage to the Realm of Fire... Surtur could get out, the fire demons could get out, and this could all be undone. All of the sacrifices, the battles could have been for nothing. Thor has to stop. And Loki is making a surprisingly good amount of sense here, even though, of course, he's working in his own self-interest. But Thor reluctantly agrees with him. But know this, brother, as you plot behind your eyes, I shall be watching you. Then I hope to make interesting viewing. But what of Beta Ray Bill? What of the armies of Asgard and Vanaheim and Nornheim? They're still on Earth. They're still in the Sahara Desert amid a crashed gate and the last few remnants of Muspelheim's army. They're facing down the final charge of the fire demons, and suddenly, without their connection to Muspelheim, they self-immolate. Their own fire consumes them. And that's the end of the battle. The good guys have won. Now all of the fronts on which this battle has been fought... The heroes are victorious, and they're trying to figure out what comes next, but Carnilla, the Norn Queen, she knows exactly what she wants to do. Carnilla knows exactly what's coming next, and it's Carnilla. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Because with a flap, she teleports her bow and her armies and herself home. She doesn't have any time for niceties. She finally has what she wanted. Her part of the bargain is complete. And now, at last, she has Balder the Brave for herself, as you mentioned. (laughs) And who is it? It's Fandral who's like, oh, how can he let himself be taken away by her? And Volstagg is basically like, you could do so well, you know? (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, again, Carnilla may be evil, but we've seen, well, not even evil. She may just be self-interested. Sure. We've seen she's a pretty impressive woman, and she and Balder definitely have a mutual respect and definitely have a spark. Yes. But now Bill, along with the Warriors 3, head back to New York City to try to find Sif. Yeah, because the last time we saw Sif, she was with the Unharriar, and then she vanished. She could be injured or dead or, well, possibly worse, given that this is the Mighty Thor and horrible things can happen. And Bill is terrified. I mean, he hasn't explicitly said so on panel, but it's pretty clear at this point, Beta Ray Bill loves the Lady Sif. 
and she is badly hurt, but thanks to Hogan's elixir of recovery, complete with its own little medicine cup, she will live. And I have to say, I love this elixir of recovery. It reminds me of like role-playing games so much. Oh man, so many glorious potions that I have quaffed in my role-playing days. So Sif is going to be all right? I mean, all things considered, we've had fewer losses than we might have, but we have lost Odin the Allfather, the leader of Asgard, and nobody knows that yet, except for Thor and Loki. And Thor, even amidst all this pain and suffering, he's still concerned about Heimdall, and he goes and finds him, fallen amid the rubble, and he tells him of Odin's death. And Heimdall is is horrified. He feels incredibly guilty that he wasn't able to lay down his life to protect his liege, that Odin is dead, or at least gone, and Heimdall himself still lives, even if just barely. Odin gone? And we are still alive? Oh, my liege, would that I had died for thee! Which is a legitimately touching moment. Like, Heimdall... I believe he would have laid down his life for Odin. He's been in his service for centuries, and now the unheard of has happened. They've lost their liege. Nearby, a couple of somewhat goofy-looking frost giants overhear that Odin's gone, and they decide, okay, now is our chance. We've been subjugated by the Allfather for so long. Let's have our revenge. Let's take out Asgard. But just as they're about to move, they are interrupted by a as the goddess of death, Hela herself, appears in front of Thor. And my goodness, her look, that green armor and her cape with a gigantic cowl with a three foot tall and five foot wide grasping clawed collar. Plus, she's gigantic. She's just this huge, imposing figure. Yeah, Hela is incredible. The design that she's had, I mean, she's had a similar design, I believe, since she first showed up in Thor. But the way Simonson draws her is just so... I don't even think imposing is the right word. She's legitimately frightening. She is the concept of death. And the gravitas that comes with the concept of death, it is right there with her. It, it rides along with her to Asgard. Save thy strength, Heimdall. I do not seek thy paltry life. I have felt a disturbance in the world like no other. Surely only Odin's death could have caused it. And yet... I do not see his body before me. I do not feel his spirit. And I want it. Because this is what Hela does. She claims souls. That's not just her job. It's basically who she is. It's her very identity. And the strongest soul of all, Odin himself, to claim him, that would be the ultimate prize. Still, there is the concept of propriety. I mean, has she never heard of giving condolences? Oh, man. Like, some people like to sit Shiva. You should give people some time. Thor says that he's alive but gone, and she says she'll take him instead. Never, Queen of the Dead! And he whacks her with a great big ram! Thor, you dare! Speak not to me of daring, thou greedy glut! You who have stolen mortal souls for your kingdom! who have taken innocence that deserved better at the hands of death than to be hidden away in the dank and clammy halls of hell. You who now come claiming my father's spirit as though the soul of Odin were some bauble that you had won. My father may live or he may not, but his soul shall never be thine. And this is the sorrow and rage of Thor. And just the sheer fury on his face. 
Hella herself is taken aback as he rains down hammer blow after hammer blow upon her. He's too fast. He's too angry. He's too strong. She realizes she can't defeat him. If she stays here, Thor is going to kill her. So she flees, and he vows again to save the souls sent to hell by Malekith. Remember, it's the cops and such who ate the evil Girl Scout cookies. It turns out that their souls were removed from their bodies and taken to hell. Yeah, I mean, that's a plot point that a lesser writer might have just forgotten. But here, it's half of Thor's motivation for his rage against Hela, and it's going to lead into arguably one of the best Thor stories ever written that we'll cover in a couple of episodes. In the meantime, however, the Frost Giants, who were about to strike, realizing that Odin was gone, having just seen Thor kick the crap out of death herself, they decide they have some other places to be. And I have to say... Thor did not learn his lesson from Surtur because he just laid out his plans to Hela, basically saying, hey, I'm going to invade you. But you know, to borrow some Firefly parlance, Thor's a stab you in the front kind of guy. Like, he's not really good at deceit, let alone subtlety. And especially when such an emotional dude as him has lost his father and Death herself tried to steal the soul of that father right after, he's not really thinking with his brain. He's thinking with his heart and with his hammer. That makes sense. So, on the shattered rainbow bridge, Thor mourns his father and ponders the fading of the connection between Midgard and Asgard, because if they don't fix the bridge soon, the connection could be gone forever. But there is one who can get between Midgard and Asgard without Bifrost, and that's the Lady Sif, who, now sufficiently healed, appears in a burst of light. She saw that Bifrost was broken, and she was afraid of what might have happened, and Thor confirms it. Odin is gone. Loki thinks that he and Surtur contend endlessly in Muspelheim, while Hela thinks him dead and seeks his soul. All I know is that my father is gone, and all my power could not save him. Sif, I have failed him. Thor, my heart, wherever he is, your father knows his son fought, unafraid, with the courage and gallantry that befits the god of thunder as he would have wished you to, and the continued existence of the Nine Worlds is the true measure of that endeavor. No matter what the cost, Surtur has failed. Do not punish thyself for deeds no man or god could do. So Walter Simonson is known for his art, for his plotting, for his narration, for all sorts of things, but I don't think his dialogue gets enough credit, because you can have the bombast and the alliteration as Thor is preparing to whack whatever he's going to whack, But then you have moments like this that are just pure emotion, that are just softness and compassion. And God, it it, it gets me just as much as any epic moment does in a different way. It lays bare the relationship between Thor and Sif. There's centuries of history together, and it's just a really tender, personal moment. And Thor realizes... He needs to get out of here. He needs to go and find some place to mourn. He's not going to be able to get over this in the middle of the ruins of Asgard or amid the aftermath of the battle in Midgard. He has to just leave. And so he asks while he's gone if Sif and by proxy Beta Ray Bill will protect Midgard lest it be undefended. He also asks her to keep Odin's death a secret from the armies. For in their awesome grief, they might do more damage than Surtur's legions. But having learned something of mortality from this grief and loss, he also has a favor for her to pass along to Foundrel. And what I thought was interesting here was that Thor really only says goodbye to Heimdall and Sif. Like, yes, the Rainbow Bridge is broken, but he doesn't go down to Midgard and seek out Bill or or anyone. He just has to go. Yeah, he 
needs to be alone in his grief and he doesn't have time to, you know, do the hug every person at the party thing. He needs to mourn his father elsewhere right now. And speaking of mourning, Frigga and the children have reached a hostel in the snowy mountains, which looks both cozy and awesome. I would totally stay there. Like, Walter Simonson draws a lot of things really well, but he draws buildings that just look super appealing, like architecturally impressive and also very homey. He could totally, like, design an amusement park, you know, kind of like the Enchanted Forest, but as Guardian. Oh, man. And maybe with slightly less creepy animatronics. Or more. Okay, so the Enchanted (laughs) Forest is like this amusement park a little bit outside of Portland, Oregon, and... I don't even know how you would describe it. It's like a lot of almost copyright infringement, semi-Disney versions of fairy tales and some rides that seem like maybe they're not fully safe, but I don't think anybody's died on them. What it is, is one man's dream. One man and his family, they like bought the property in the 60s and he's made almost everything by hand over the the decades, like finally like working his way up to some pretty awesome rides. The Challenge of Mordor. Is it Mordor? Mondor. Mondor copyright infringement um, and all, just all kinds of awesome things. But it's a, a thing that kind of blows your mind when you're a kid and then you laugh at as a teenager and then it just kind of scares you as an adult, but you still really enjoy it. Exactly. It's uh, much like Walter Simonson's uh, run of the mighty Thor. You, you catch new aspects of it as you age. But anyway, uh, Frieger refuses to tell a bedtime story to the children and she goes out on the far balcony alone as the kids go to bed. And then they find her there and hug her, saying that they know Odin's gone, but he'll be back, right? And this moment, speaking of moments of tenderness, I mean, you can see the sorrow etched on Frigga's face. Part of the reason that works is that Walter Simonson doesn't draw her as just a standard pretty comic book lady, but with gray hair. Like, she looks old. She is not a young woman. And you see those careworn lines in her face. You see all of the tragedies and happy moments that she's been through. And right now what you see is the sorrow of somebody who has lost their love. And so seeing the children try to comfort her, but also see comfort from her while she just wants to be alone and nonetheless puts her arms around them and gathers them to her, it's touching. Yeah, he's he's great with this and with the, the scene with Thor and Sif just kind of cracking open people's vulnerabilities, like even these grand, great, invulnerable heroes, like showing, you know, the personal cost of war. Right. And that's what you do with the good denouement. You don't just say, yay, everything's fine. But you address the fact that, hey, sacrifices were made. Things were lost that will never be retrieved or at least will never be the same. Next, Sif returns to the armies in Central Park to announce to them Bifrost has been destroyed and they must stay on Midgard until an alternative has been arranged. And interestingly, it's actually Volstag here of the Warriors 3 who wonders why it wasn't Odin that delivered the message. Volstag is no dummy. He's often distracted by food or whatever, but he's very observant. Fandral, however, simplifies things greatly. Nonsense, Volstag! Tis time to party! Sif asks Bill to stay, so he transforms into his Corbinite guise to be inconspicuous. And as you remember, Odin moved the Don Blake enchantment from Mjolnir to Stormbreaker, so now Beta Ray Bill can turn into what he looked like before he was turned into a cybernetic horse monster. However, even the most normal-looking Corbinite could not exactly pass for human, what with the orange skin, angular features, complete lack of ears and a nose. Yeah, he still kind of looks like a shiny Oscar man out on the street. 
He kind of does, doesn't he? I never thought about that. It, it turns out the Oscar statue is actually a Corbinite. What they need is to have some sort of a villain pick him up as a Corbinite and make a speech. Perfect. <laughs> but as Sif and Beta Ray Bill head off to see what Midgard has to offer, Loki himself appears in the realm of mortals. I mean, I gotta say, the Bifrost is broken, but most of our main characters, that doesn't seem to be too much of a problem for them. He specifically appears in Lorelei's apartment. And she's confused and annoyed that Thor hasn't come back to her, given the mead brainwashing. She's also getting bored of Midgard, so Loki teleports the both of them back to Asgard so they can plan their next scheme. I think the two of you should begin discussing the next ruler of Asgard. And that will come into play very soon indeed, but back in Asgard, Thor has been riding for days out into the snowy wilderness. He's trying to somehow find peace. He's trying to somehow come to terms with the loss of the man who's been his father for as long as the cosmos has existed almost. After days on horseback, he suddenly spots footprints. And then we see Hela watching him and she uses her powers to age the mountains, to make the rocks brittle and loosen the roots and basically cause it to disintegrate to cause an avalanche. And then she blasts her energy through her scrying orb to decay and kill Thor's horse to dust under him as he tries to escape it. Boom! And he's buried. Under a mountain's worth of snow, ice, and stone. And once again, all is silent in the mountains of Asgard. As silent as the grave. But we're not quite done with this story, even though we are done with what's going on in Asgard and with Thor for now, because suddenly we have an honest-to-God backup story called Tales of Midgard, Home of the Amazing Human Race. And I love it so much because it sounds like like a report that Thor would do in middle school, you know, for after his science fair project, which would be, of course, you know, a, a poster of the circulatory system. <laughs> he's got his three-section uh, foam board. Yes, yes. He's trying to convince Odin that mortals have some sort of purpose. And what's really cool about this is that there used to be a backup strip in the Thor comic called Tales of Asgard, which while Thor was doing his thing, it would show, you know, tales of the history of Asgard, what the various gods had been up to, some stuff that was often more based on Norse mythology than the A-plots of the stories were. And so it's a nice reversal here to have it be Tales of Midgard instead. I did not know that. That's really cool. It's, it's pretty adorable, yeah. But we are in Chicago at Dr. Donald Blake's office. So Dr. Donald Blake was Thor's previous mortal guys before, you know, the enchantment was lifted and he took on Sigurd Jarlson as his civilian identity. And so, of course, Don Blake hasn't been seen for, at this point, probably months. You know, he just disappeared out of nowhere. And so his staff, the people who've worked at his office, uh, Mrs. Barkley, Shauna Lynn's, Nurse Stevens, they don't know what happened. They've just been referring all of Don Blake's patients to other doctors and they keep showing up to work, but nothing is happening. Yeah, they're running out of money. They're not sure when they'll ever see Don again. Like they've uh, hired a private investigator and he just gave them back the retainer and said, don't look anymore. So they're really suspicious. And I looked to see if I could find some history on these characters because I haven't read earlier Thor. And it turns out that Dr. Shauna Lind was a 
pretty uh, a fairly prominent supporting character. She was a classmate of Dawn's in medical school, and uh, she later became kind of a romantic rival for Sif, who would come to town posing as Dawn's cousin Sybil. So Dr. Shauna Lind was always trying to set her up on a double date with her and Dawn and another doctor. So I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. I I should read more Silver Age Thor. I, I've read so little of it, and, and there's some delightful stuff to be found, it sounds like. There really is. Suddenly, a very familiar blonde, goateed man in brilliant green arrives. I bid you greetings, damsels. Tis a morning that sings of thy beauty and grace to all the city. Why, the sunlight fair bathes the cloud-capped towers in gold. And of course, this is Fandral, clad in the most amazing 80s green tracksuit ever. I like that he found the 80s Midgardian exact equivalent of what he wears in Asgard. He really did. Like, he, like, studied fashion magazines and shopped around and found the perfect outfit. And so he tells them that Don had to leave to work with the government on something he can't tell them about, and Don may never return. But he did tell Fandral to bring his employees severance pay, which is apparently in the form of a giant sack of Odin-branded gold coins along with golden traditional Mjolnir bracelets for each of the women. And he bestows the severance pay on them, saying, Your service to Dr. Blake is at an end. You have known one of the noblest beings to walk the veils of Midgard. And though you shall not henceforth remember him in your waking lives, still your dreams will always be colored by the radiance of his presence. And your heart shall be glad, though they know not why. I say, go in peace. Uh, it's sweet and a little bit creepy. Yeah, he's erased their memories of Don Blake. He's just left them happy and content, mystically, with whatever Asgardian powers that he's used. And that's it. Now nobody knows that Don Blake ever really existed, or at least nobody that would care that much. He's been removed from history, removed from memory, and Thor's last tie to his old life is gone. What I like the most about this is the writers didn't have to go wrap this up. This feels like sort of an excellent fan service. And also, Fondrel didn't have to go and give severance pay to these women. Eventually, they would have found other jobs. So this feels very generous on several levels. Like, it's great for the reader, and it's just another example of Thor taking care of the little guy. And it also works very well, I think, to wrap up what is effectively the first era of Walter Simonson's Thor. I mean, number 337 began with Surtur out in space beginning to forge Twilight, and this issue ends with the comic wrapping up one of the plot threads that's been dangling ever since Don Blake ceased to be so soon after the run started. Thor's going to continue to be awesome under Simonson, and we're not even halfway through, but in a way, the first story is now fully complete and what a satisfying if tragic ending it all is it's full circle in so many ways and and just looking back on this as a whole seeing how well it was planned out how well it was paced how every little detail every little moment meant something and affected something it really makes this a satisfying payoff what a freaking masterpiece this entire run is and there's still so much more cool stuff to come so much more but first, before we leave you all, we must, of course, share with you our Recognitions of Merit. And Elizabeth, please start us off with the Crack-A-Doom Award for these three issues. So my Crack-A-Doom Award from issue 353 is Shrek 
This is when the gateway tips over in the Sahara, literally tipping the battle in our hero's favor. <laughs> but I chose it because it stretches across four panels and it is an amazingly elongated 39 characters long. I'm so pleased that you counted. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, if I got it wrong, don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Hell's Haberdashery. Okay, so I almost went with Baldur's Amazing Helmet because he hasn't been in full battle garb, I believe, until we see him show up in the Sahara. It's a really cool helmet. It's got these great big fins with, like, balls on the edges. It's just just super gigantic. But we're going to see more of Baldur lately. And also, I then realized first place has got to go to Odin's War Helm. It's got this almost Magneto-like opening in the front that sort of covers his cheeks and just leaves his nose and eyes and mouth free. It's also got these built-in metal eyebrow plates, like it's extra armor for his eyebrows themselves, which when you're an awesome, intimidating old man like Odin, I mean, your eyebrows are a big part of, of your might. I'm pretty sure he's got at least a couple spell slots in each of those things, so you got to protect him. It's got this ring suitable for hanging the helm, or I guess hanging Odin himself if he straps himself into the helmet, on top. These elaborately curving horns that branch forward into the sides, and these almost bladed, enormous side plates providing a strife-like look to the side of his helmet. There's so much happening with this helmet, and using the logic that the more stuff is on your helmet, the more power it grants you, like, I mean, that thing could very well be the Odin force itself. It's great. I like to imagine that he can manipulate the eyebrow, you know, helmet part so he can like move his eyebrows and do the Spock and everything. Oh, man. That makes me think of the uh, criminally underrated live action Tick uh, series starring Patrick Warburton, where the antennae on the top of the Tick were actually remote controlled by somebody off to the side. Like Patrick Warburton didn't know what they were doing, but they were always echoing his moods and his dialogue. And they were like their own little character on top of his head. That sounds awesome. Oh, I love that series so much. I wish it had lasted. I know there's a new one but it's not the same it's not like patrick warburton and captain liberty and batman well and stuff ah what can you do well what you can do is then go to the whatsoever holds this hammer award for the worthiest non-character in these issues and i selected from issue 353 loki's fake eternal flame it oh man yeah we did like the real eternal flame last time and now it's the fake eternal flame and you know, this makes me want to sing the Bangles Eternal Flame now. This <laughs> eternal. Oh, wait, no, never mind. But when we do Asgardian karaoke, I'm totally going to do that one. I never thought of it, but that would be perfect. <laughs> yes. Anyway, sorry. I chose it because it was the perfect moment for the story and for the characters. And it was a great way to introduce Loki into the battle and have him save the day in his own snarky way. Oh, man, what a perfect accessory to the majestic deceit of the God of Lies. But I did have a runner-up. From 354, Fondrel's amazing green and yellow tracksuit. I implore you, dear listeners, to go look at this because it is both perfectly 80s and perfectly fondral, like from the popped collar all the way down to what looks like white Adidas with uh, green stripes. And you said it earlier, his Midgard wardrobe perfectly complements his Asgardian sense of style. I mean, this is Fandral the dashing, after all, and boy, does he dash. He does. Speaking of which, we have the most metal moment. 
How does one choose the most metal moment in an arc like this? I mean, every page, there's something that would have won that award in a different episode, but, like, they just keep coming. Everything is incredible. Like, I was practically standing up in my seat and cheering, like, the first time I saw Pacific Rim almost every page turn. So, I don't know. I've narrowed it down to two, and I think I have a winner. So I'll start with the runner-up, which is the moment when Roger Willis in the Rip Roar 1 closes the casket of Ancient Winters, which across the cosmos themselves in the realm of Asgard causes Odin to burst free of his icy prison, attacking Surtur, and then Thor himself just shows up and hits Surtur just as Surtur's about to ignite Twilight, and then Loki shows up and they all team up and it's a great big, like, father-son's alliance against the pure force of destruction. I mean, that's pretty cool, but you know, I think what's even cooler is the one-on-one battle between Odin and Surtur that we started this episode with, because they're they're both the most powerful forces in their respective realms of Muspelheim and Asgard, but Surtur has access to all of his power, and because of the way Surtur has arranged things, Odin doesn't, but that, he doesn't let that delay him for even a moment. He just uses his ultimate power, and then when that doesn't work, he uses his ultimate er power, and then his ultimate ultimate er er power. Like he just keeps reaching into his reserves of of willpower and of of vigor and of dedication to the realm of Asgard, to his role as its Allfather, again and again and again. You know, fighting this foe destined to literally burn down the world. When could the stakes be higher? Like if you're gonna just reach deep and just turn yourself inside out using every last bit of mysticism you can. This is absolutely the time. It's like it's like in White Wolf, you know, you burn all of your willpower and like then it turns out you had other dots on a hidden page that you hadn't even shown the storyteller and then you burn that too. It's like in Final Fantasy 4 when the sage Tella turns all of his hit points into magic points because he doesn't have enough maximum magic points to cast Meteo on the guy who killed his daughter and then it doesn't work anyway, but it's still awesome. Like this is the perfect archetype of I'm going to give everything I have, and then I'm just going to keep on digging for as long as it takes. And that is why Odin is amazing, and that is why this is this episode's most metal moment. Dude, I think you just wielded the Odin power with that description. (laughs) You gave it your all, just like Odin. Oh, now I'm out of willpower points (laughs) and hit points. At least you win the metal moment. Yeah, you are the most metal moment of this podcast. (laughs) I had the metal within me all along. But seriously, oh God, this arc, there's just, there's just so much good stuff, so much good stuff, and there's so much good stuff to come. Because next time, in Thor number 355 and 357 through 359, Beta Ray Bill and the Lady Sif face a threat most Midgardian. And Thor seeks solace in the wilds, but finds something unexpected. Tiwas of the Wastes, the credit card soldiers, and King Loki? This has been, and shall ever be, The The Lightning Lightning and and the the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then... Fight on, brave warriors. For valor. For glory. For Asgard! For glory.